Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. We're here with Ryan Singer of Basecamp to talk about user interface design. So, Ryan, we'd like to start off with a definition. What precisely is UI design? You guys told me in the beginning that we're talking about what non-technical folks need to know in order to understand these terms. So I think from a non-technical point of view, you want to think, okay, what is this software that we need to make? And what are the ingredients in order to make a software product? And I think everybody knows that you need a programmer. And uh, a programmer is kind of like the person making the doing the plumbing in the house or, or making the engine in the car. They're making all the internals to the software product. The UI design is all the externals of the software product. It's the stuff that somebody who's using it can see. It's the buttons that they press. It's the steps that they go through. So it's all of the handles and buttons and, and words and processes that the human who's actually using the software sees and interacts with. Okay, that's great. The term UX or user experience gets thrown around a lot. Can you also give us a brief definition of that and how that comes into play? When you're talking about making a software product, there are tangible things that need to be built. So the programming is actual codes that are in files that are running in the computer. And the the UI is actual buttons and words and pixels on the screen that are displayed. Those are the tangible things. Then if you want to talk about whether a UI is is good or not, or whether a software product is doing what it's supposed to do, then you have to relate that to the person who's using it. So somebody comes up to your software product and they're trying to get something done. And then you you want to think about, okay, when this person opens up my app, can they understand it? Can they go through the steps that they need to go through to perform their task? Do they like it? Do they like using it? Or is it a, is it a hassle or, a, or a, an annoyance to them? And um, user experience, UX, refers to what goes on in the person. You know, so it's not, it's, UX isn't something that your software has. It's something that a person goes through. So it's just a perspective where you're looking at what you make from the point of view of the person who's using it. And then you say, is it a good experience or a bad experience? And how does it fit into the situations that the person is using it? So UI is actually something tangible and concrete that you have to build and construct. And the UX is a point of view from which you look at the UI to, to judge whether it's good or not. Okay. And you've written before that UX might actually be a distraction to somebody that is uh, starting out. Would you agree with that? That maybe you should focus on UI? I would qualify that. That depends very much on the role that you're in. So if you're somebody who's trying to learn UI, if you are like a budding UI designer or UI developer, then I think in that case, the UX terminology is going to be a big distraction in the beginning because you have to get the mechanics down before you can get into the the more artistic and subtle things about what makes it good and what makes it bad. You know, it's like you've got to be able to wire things up and make things function before you can talk about all the different possible ways that you could design them. From the standpoint of a of someone who's not technical, um, who who you know, if it's if it's not your job to be the UI designer, then UX is a, is basically the only thing I think that a non technical founder can do. 
You know, if you don't know how to build and you don't know how to program and you don't know how to put wire an interface together, then you're not the one that's prototyping. You're the one who's evaluating and giving direction. And UX user experience means when you are evaluating and giving direction on what the product should be, do it with the user's point of view in mind, which is, I think, what a good leader should be doing, right? Because it's your users who are going to be using the thing. I mean, ideally, your user and your customer are the same person. And sometimes your your customer and your user are different people, and that's that's a different situation. But in the simplest case, the person who's giving you money is the person who's going through the experience of actually clicking on the thing that you, you're giving them and um, or tapping on it. <laughs> and you want to look at it from their point of view because they're the ones who make the value judgment to whether or not to give you money and whether or not to recommend it to their friends and so on. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Who on the team would you say should be most responsible for UX? Somebody has to understand why this thing is valuable. Why are we building this product? And there has to be somebody who knows what the purpose is of the whole thing, you know? And I think that accurately understanding the value of the product and being able to judge user experience, I think these are the same thing. I know that there are folks out there who come in with a business idea and they don't really have much expertise beyond just having an idea and being able to get money together and make a good pitch. And personally, I think that that's not enough to make a successful business. I think that to make a good product, you have to know what a good product is. And UX is just a fancy way of saying knowing what a good product is. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And so you talk about when a product is just an idea, where should that person begin then? I don't really know how to answer that because um, my experience comes from being somebody who knows how to make things and then seeing a problem and then bringing the skills that I have to bear on the problem. So the situation that you mentioned to me before we started the interview where somebody really doesn't have skills but just has an idea, honestly, I don't really know how to relate to that very much because it's hard for me to imagine even formulating a product concept without knowing what's possible and knowing how I would approach it and stuff like that, you know? So to me, it seems like a tough situation to be in, you know? I think it's the best you can do is get good people and maybe in that case, you do actually need a, a dedicated person to be sort of the steward of the user experience because if you don't have enough, let's say, uh, experience with the details of what make products good and what make products annoying, you know, or w- what makes them good to use, you're going to need somebody who, who does that. But I mean, how to do that, you know, how to, how to hire somebody for something that you don't personally have the skills to judge, that's a, that's a tough situation to be in. I think it's a really tough spot to be in. Right. That makes sense. And I, we actually, we were doing some reading of the uh, conversation that you had with the guys at Intercom about UX. And you said that UX tends to solve these sort of client agency problems where you need deliverables. You need to be able to get somebody to sign off on something. So having wireframes, having mockups to have that person with the idea say, yes, this is actually what I'm looking for is the, the go ahead. How would you tell that person how to judge those products or is it is it even possible to judge them? I like that you bring that up because it raises the question of basically what is the deliverable? And what I was trying to get at with Des on that conversation that we had that you just mentioned is that the UX is a point of view, not a deliverable. And the things that you deliver are the things that you ship. You know, you ship a, a product that has running code and a clickable user interface. That is tangible material that you ship. 
and all of the other deliverables like the diagrams and the PowerPoint slides and the, the bullet points and the, the research papers, all that stuff is not anything that your user consumes. It's all stuff to convince people internally or to make yourself feel sure about something that you're not clear about. It's, it's all kind of the, the internal things that we, we do just to make ourselves clear about what we're trying to do. And, and a lot of the times, the deliverables, if you go and you read books about UX or you, you read blogs about UX, they talk about a lot of deliverables that don't actually participate or let's say they're not part of the shipped product. And from my point of view, if it's not part of the shipped product, then it, as a deliverable, it doesn't have much meaning. I mean, of course, we have to make our to-do lists and our sketches here and there, but, but we also need to put them in the right place, you know? I think that if you don't know what you need, <laughs> the best thing you can do is to focus on the tangibles as much as you possibly can and work in smaller pieces so that you can get to a moment of truth. You know, if you, if you don't know exactly what you need, then the only way to really learn is to make something and get it out in front of people. I mean, this is the only way that I, I, can, I can explain, is to, is to make something, get it in front of people, and observe what happens. And I think that that loop, what we're talking about is a real experience, you know, a real moment of truth. I had this idea, here's a prototype that we built. Can you put it in front of somebody who actually has that problem and see if they can click through it and, and do what they need done in the situation it's designed for? And then you use that feedback to make decisions. So maybe, for example, you find when you put your, your prototype in front of people that they get lost or they can't find the function that they need to perform or they tell you that it looks great, but then they actually, when it comes time to use it, for some reason, they actually just never bother, right? So these different things that go wrong when you put it in front of people, they give you an indication about what you need to learn and what you need to get better at. So if you put something in front of people and they just never bother to use it, then maybe you haven't defined the you ha, you haven't figured out something that's actually valuable yet. Or maybe you have a, something that you know is valuable and they try to use it, but it's too slow or they have struggles with it or it doesn't work as it's supposed to and then you have a UX UI problem. Or maybe you put it in front of people like the uh, the Obama healthcare thing and it just crashes relentlessly. <laughs> <laughs> then you need a different technical approach, right? So I, I think that when you don't have the experience to judge like what you need, then what you need to do is, is not do more head work, but get some experience, you know, by putting it out there and seeing where it falls down. Are there any intermediate deliverables that you think make sense, say, before having somebody code up the product itself? Honestly, no. Could I, you dig into that? Well... I'm trying to imagine what I could ship that's not a product that would do anything. And I could write a description of a product I want to make, but it's like the only way to test a light bulb is to plug it into the socket, you know? And uh, <laughs> it's the only way to do it, you know what I mean? And you can draw a paper light bulb and you can write an essay about your feelings about light bulbs and you can draw a map to all the places that sell light bulbs. But the only way to know if the light bulb works is to plug it into the socket. And that's the name of the game with product development is we have to actually make something that we can plug into the situation. So I think maybe this is a missing piece in the conversation. I think what happens a lot of the time is folks want to make a product or they want to build something and making a product seems hard. So they try to make products that aren't software, right? <laughs> it's like we get so stuck in the mindset of making a product and all we can think about is what can I create? There's a whole other side of the coin, which is that the product that we're trying to make 
is supposed to fit into context. It's supposed to fit into some situation where people are lacking something or striving for something or have some kind of potential energy to do something. So if you're making a, a snack bar, like a, a protein bar or a, a power bar type thing that you want to sell to people who are on the go and need to have some sort of they need to get feel full and feel satisfied and move on with their day even though they're hungry because they don't have time for a proper meal. The only way to test that is to give it to somebody who's hungry and busy, you know? But identifying that context that it's the it's the hungry busy person that this is what creates the value, this is the situation that I'm trying to improve, that is is really important. Uh, a lot of the time what I what I've seen with folks who are struggling to make a product is they they spend a lot of time analyzing the product and drawing wireframes and sketches and coming up with what the product should be. And they don't get really clear about what the context is. You know, what is actually going on in the situation that they're trying to improve? So perhaps there's some deliverable where it is more clarity about the context. So for example, all the different type of stuff out there that's going on with the so-called jobs to be done movement, where you have, you're doing interviews with people who have actually purchased something that does the thing that your product is supposed to do, or you do some research to see what are the workarounds that people are performing? What are the things that people are doing today that your product would replace? Because the thing is, there has to be some tangible itch out there in the world that your product is meant to scratch. And if that itch exists, then you should be able to see some kind of behavior that your product is a substitute for. So for example, when we made Basecamp, it's not like people never managed a project before. It's not that people never managed, tried to centralize their client communications before. It was just they had really bad tools to do it. So when we were a consulting firm, we were uh, sending emails back and forth with the clients that we were working with. And uh, Jason was the lead contact for the client and he would email them and then he would forward their feedback on the latest comp onto me. And then I would, you know, make the screenshot and then attach it in an email to him. And then he would email it onto them and, you know, all the emails would get lost. And, <laughs> and, but we were trying to keep a kind of thread of communication going about the work so that we could have a back and forth conversation about here's what they said, here's what we delivered, here's their feedback, you know. And when we had this idea, like, hey, what if, what if we had something like a blog that was private and it was just for this one project and we could invite the client and then we could all have this conversation in a centralized place instead of over a game of telephone, you know, with emails shooting back and forth, that would be better. So there was a really tangible sense of here is the current behavior. Here's why the current behavior is unsatisfying. Here's why changing the current behavior would be worth paying for. And here's the new behavior that we're going to substitute. You know, that type of analysis, I think, is useful because then you can you can build your confidence that there's really an itch to scratch there. But again, I want to say I want to stress that then what you did is you you identified the socket. You know, you, you saw that there's a place that you can plug your, your light bulb into. But you, there's still the only way to really find out if you're onto something or not is to prototype something and stick it into the socket and see if it completes the circuit and if light comes out of it or not, you know. So it, it just always comes back to the same basic things, which is identifying a potential, prototyping something that actually does something, inserting it into that potential, and then seeing if you have something valuable. Going off of that, do you have any questions that a first-time founder might want to ask themselves to get more clarity around things? Man, it's tough because I'm, I'm speculating because I, 
I don't know what it's like to be a non-technical person trying to pull this off. But what I would say is um, I think that it seems that non-technical folks have a very high tolerance and illogically high tolerance for risk when it comes to design and construction of projects. You see it all the time with architecture. So somebody wants a building made, they hire an architect and the architect, the vast majority of architects don't go on site and mock up a play building for you that you can, you know what I mean? Like remember when you were a kid and you made forts out of blankets and stuff like that? Like <laughs> yeah. you, you, you knew if it was a good fort or not because you could sit in it. And it didn't matter if it was made out of blankets. It was still a fort, you know. And um, it's amazing that no architects, very, very, very few architects uh, take advantage of this childhood experience. <laughs> because what happens is you get some architect to design a, a building for you that's going to cost a million dollars, two million dollars or more. And what happens? They make drawings, Right. We look at these drawings that we don't understand because they're totally technical and flat and they're not in 3D and we can't sit inside of them and we can't walk through them. And then we agree to make a huge bet and say, okay, let's spend a million dollars building that drawing. It's crazy. <laughs> it's insane. And, and the same thing happens with software. This is what happened with the, what's it called, with the Obamacare launch Here's a 20 pages of bullet points and specifications for what this thing is supposed to do. Here is a big fat pile of money. Come back in a year or two years or longer with the thing working, right? It's the exact same thing again, where the person with the stakeholder is making a huge bet on something that they can't see and can't test and can't judge. And, uh, and it's a bad deal for everybody. So uh, the advice that I would say is think about that. Notice how little sense it makes. <laughs> Really develop a deep feeling of discomfort with that model in your stomach and look for an alternative. And the what's called the agile movement was meant to be originally an alternative to that. But as all movements, the more entrenched it got and the more formal it got and the more recognition it got, it became a set of 36 steps that you should follow. And people are certified masters and, and scholars of it. And, and it just becomes more process. And we lose the key point again. And the key point is that these hundred mile bets, you know, these million dollar bets, these year long bets are bad bets to make because we're betting on something that we can't see and we don't, we don't know what we're betting on. And so what we should always be trying to do is decompose the problem, figure out what is something that we can make in a week, in a month, in two months that is going to help us learn whether we have judged that context that situation, that thing that's going on, that itch out there in the world that we're trying to scratch, what can we do short of spending this, all this money and all this, making all this risk to experiment with scratching that itch, you know? And okay, you can't make a, there's no way around making a, if you have a big building to build, the only way you can do it is to build it. But you can get out there with wooden poles and string and make a wireframe on the land and actually sit there in the middle of it and judge where the window should be by looking out. You know, there are things that you can do in 3D that you cannot do on a piece of paper. And it's the same way with software, where we can have a couple key features of the software working, and we can have other features kind of stubbed out in a scaffold form or just a scan of a, of a hand-drawn sketch standing in for a feature that might be there later. And uh, uh, this kind of playful, interactive prototyping, where we're just getting a little bit working and then judging it and then getting more working, this type of process is, I think, what a team should look for, what a non-technical founder should look for, because it, it means that you are actually learning 
through the design and construction process and you're not just making a big bet on a bunch of drawings that you don't understand in the beginning and then twiddling your thumbs and spending your money and losing sleep for months in between. That makes perfect sense. And uh, so it sounds like what you're saying is that you really need to mitigate risk by limiting the scope of what you're doing. Uh, yeah, by limiting the scope at a given time. So it doesn't mean that you need to compromise your grand vision. It just means that you want to be able to to get something working before you have everything working and incrementally gain confidence that you know how to scratch the itch that you think and or that the itch even exists. If you have something where you have like a, a like let's say when we were working on Basecamp, we had a version of Basecamp where all you could do was post some messages back and forth. It wasn't a, a full-fledged product. It wasn't everything we thought it could be. But man, you could tell that we were onto something. When you could actually post some discussions on there and shoot work back and forth, it validated our assumptions. And I have the exact same thing happening over and over again with all the... I've done tons of side projects. And um, I, I do a lot of side projects on a kind of volunteer basis for the Buddhist group that I work with. And uh, when you only have an hour or two hours a week to work on a side project... The only way that you're ever going to feel like you're making progress is if you can scope the work down into smaller components and validate those individually. Otherwise, you know, an hour a week, it's going to be four, three years before you actually have something that works, right? And uh, like I'm working right now on a system for uh, organizing uh, international tours where we have like 40, 50 people from all different countries that need to pay in and, and have vans organized and hotels organized in different cities so that they can go on a tour with our, with our main Buddhist teacher. There's a lot of logistics there. And um, there's a lot of existing process there that is that sucks, where people are uh, you manually have spreadsheets and you have payment receipts stuck in an envelope and you have stuff written down in little pieces of paper and emails all over the place. It's uh, there's plenty of existing workflows, but they're difficult and they they're they're not adequate. And uh, so uh, what I'm able to do is I can pick off one thing. Like, what if I could see a single list of everybody who was registered for the hotel, or what if I could accept payments online? and at least record that they were for the hotel and not for the van. And you can get one little corner of the thing working and you see, man, it's awesome to be able to just type in this person's name and see if they paid or not instead of digging you know, through bank statements or, or dollar bills in, a, in an envelope or, or whatever, right? And you, you bite off one little corner of the problem and you see that you're making it better. And that is what I think healthy development, healthy growth feels like. Yeah, that's great. So let's say that you you've actually done what you're suggesting. We've taken your advice and uh, we're getting something shipped really quickly. We've got something out there. What do you do with the user and uh, stakeholder feedback that you end up getting? You know, I think that opens up a question, which is how wide is the gap between the user and you? And um, if you don't know how the user is going to react to something, then I think that you are not picking a good problem. I don't think that you are uniquely positioned to execute the problem, which is what you want to be. You know what I mean? You want to be the person who understands the problem so well that you're going to do it better than anybody else. And if you don't understand the problem and you have to outsource your understanding of the problem to the user, then what makes you any better than anybody else at doing this? Why are you the one to do this? To me, that's not a very convincing situation. You know, I wouldn't want to invest in somebody who, who doesn't understand whether the thing they're making is scratching the itch or not because they don't know where the itch is. You know, if you have to always ask your user, did that scratch it? Did that scratch it? Did that scratch it? Then you haven't internalized the, or embodied that itch yourself. 
which is exactly what you need to do if you're going to be leading the allocation of tons of resources and people's time and effort to, to develop a, a scratcher for that itch. You have to, you have to internalize that itch. So I think that already when we're talking about, you know, what do I give to the user and how do I know what they need? Now this, I understand this is not, a lot of people will tell you that I'm wrong, but I'm not. You need to feel the itch yourself in order to scratch it. You have to understand the problem yourself. If you don't have any clue about whether you're getting closer or not to solving the problem, everything is going to be hard. Like no process is going to help you because you don't know what you're trying to do. And when you know for yourself what the problem is and what it feels like to have the problem and what it feels like for the problem to be 10% better and 20% better and 30% better, then you don't need to, to go blindly out to the world and say, I made this thing and I don't know if it's good and can you tell me if it's good or not? And honestly, I actually think that it's, it's very difficult to do this iterative approach that I'm advocating unless you also are able to internally judge your progress. I think you need to, to know the problem firsthand in order to build a solution for it. Now, I want to challenge you on that a little bit and differently than I think you'll expect me to challenge you in, in the sense that let's say that I feel like I know the pain and I'm building for this pain that I'm feeling myself and I put it out there and the feedback that I get back is not, oh, yes, you were solving the same pain that I had originally experienced. What do you do in that case, you know, where you feel as though what you're building should be solving that pain, but it's not? Well, there are a lot of dimensions, I suppose. It could be that um, you picked the right problem, but you didn't understand the details of their workflow. So you know that the problem is right, but you, you didn't have enough resolution on actually the different types of information that they need at which moment and what what steps they perform in which order connected to all the other things that are going on in their day. So one aspect of it is how abstract is your understanding of the problem? You know, do you have a, a general notion that, that this is a problem and it's, it's an abstract thing? Or do you know what it's like to actually sit at their desk and do what they do all day? And you know, at 3 p.m., when I'm on getting, just hanging up the phone from talking to this person and the email came in from that person, I'm opening up the system to do X, Y, and Z. I think that a lot of the time the mismatch comes from having the, the abstract sense that there's a problem, but not having that concrete situational level knowledge of this is what happens at 3.10 p.m. on a Tuesday when I'm hanging up the phone and the email comes in and I'm looking up the address for the contact and da 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 da, da that kind of thing. So there's a resolution thing. And then the other part of it is um, – actually, you know what? I, I think I could stop there because um, – there are always going to be other things that can be wrong. We can design our interface in a way that isn't clear. We can design the interface so that you do the steps in a way that doesn't quite fit. The app could be too slow. It could be that it doesn't show the information you need at the right time. But the answer to all of those different problems comes back again and again to understanding the situation that the person is in at higher level of detail again. So um, I think it just comes down to the same thing, which is, Really knowing what, what it's like to be the person who you're trying to help and being able to internalize that as much as possible. So maybe, maybe you share something and it's not adequate, but I would look at that as, a, as not as a validation that there's a barrier where we'll never know what they need, but it's an indication that we haven't learned enough and that we should learn more or we should empathize more. Or we should spend more time with them or spend more time sitting next to them or 
or whatever it is that we need to do to be able to internalize at a higher resolution what they're going through. That's awesome. That makes a lot of sense. I have another question. Our audience, they constantly ask us, should I learn how to code? Should I learn how to code? Do you have any advice for them on this? I think the question is, should I learn how to build a product or not? Because if you learn how to code, but you can't ship a product, then you're not going to be much further along. You know, the gap between knowing how to program and being able to actually make something that is a, make a product, there's a big gap there. I'm friends with uh, with uh, with Neil, who runs the uh, Starter League and Starter School here in Chicago, and uh, you know he runs a program. They bring people in, and people come into the program, and they don't just learn how to program, but they learn how to actually make an entire app. And when they come out of that, they've actually made a product. That type of knowledge is really useful because what they learn is not just how the the hip bone is connected to the leg bone inside of a computer, but they learn about how all the different roles integrate to produce the end result. And I think this is what a non-technical founder needs to understand better than anything else is how do all the pieces integrate? Because one thing is getting the code to run. Another thing is figuring out how to break your problem down into separate features. And uh, another thing is how to design interfaces for those features. And another thing is how are the interfaces and the code wired together such that you can work on one when you don't have the other one built yet. Or then if you have both of them built, changing the second one doesn't break the first one. Like there's a lot of stuff there, you know. So, I mean, learning to code is great if you want to be a programmer. But if you don't want to be a programmer, I'm not sure how far learning to code is going to take you, honestly. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Ryan. This has been really great for our audience. I know that they're going to love it. Tell us, where can we keep up with you online? I am RJS on Twitter. I have a, a website with some old articles. There's a few, there's a few articles that are, that are probably uh, still relevant from a couple of years ago at feltpresence.com. That's my website. And uh, I've really been heads down lately with, um, with building things and, and, and actually making some projects. I've uh, been just trying to talk less and build more lately. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm still tweeting here and there. So RJS on Twitter is probably the best bet. All right. Thank you so much. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Talking Code Podcast. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to open iTunes and subscribe. We have some great episodes coming up. And if you like the podcast, please be sure to give us a review. Thanks. Thanks.